Before we get into this week's episode, we would love to remind you that while the show will always be free, we also have a Patreon where you can get even more fandom. Go on and visit patreon.com forward slash the fandom show where for a couple bucks a month, you can listen to episodes early, get random fandom mail from us, check out our nerds letter. Uh, this month, uh, you're going to get, you would have gotten a really special treat of an exclusive video version of our Gates McFadden episode. Uh, we also uh, have a patron exclusive, the fan club podcast, where we watch movies that one of us loves and the other has never seen. This month, we watched Labyrinth. Ooh mystery. Uh, so once more, that's patreon.com forward slash the fandom show. But you're already doing the most supportive thing, which is just listening. So thank you so much. And let's get to the episode. Oh, the hello, 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 and welcome to the fandom show, the podcast where we learn about fantastic fandoms by talking to our favorites about their favorites. I am Kaya Green. And I'm Stephanie Malik. And today we are talking about a band that wears ears for hats. That's right. It is Josie and the Pussycats. That's a reference to one of their songs, one of their excellent, excellent songs. Steph, what do you know about the, the movie, I suppose? We're really doing the movie more than the comic books. But what do you know about the 2000s movie, Josie and the Pussycats? Uh, the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats. Thank you so much for asking. The most notable thing that happened in 2001. Yep, the only <laughs> thing that mattered, Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> In April. It was released, it was released in, April. in April. Okay, so it had some time. Okay. It had some time to, yeah, well, to, to get out there. That's good to know. Um, what do I know? I mean, I, I've loved this movie since it came out. I think it. I was the perfect age for this movie. In 2001, I was an age that was younger than I am now. Um, well, that is how time works. No, I was, I was 20. <laughs> so this movie was just like, ooh, yum, 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 yum. And I was, mm. you know, I love pop music. I, I love pop punk specifically. It's just, it's a beautiful genre. So this hit Every single note for me at the time. Um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I love this movie so much. I, I don't even know how to say what I know about it because I just, like, it has always been. It, it is forever. It is timeless. It is forever, yes. Uh, Kai, how about you? Um, well, I was a different age, also younger, <laughs> also in the past. Um, I was a tween, and so I feel like this, it's funny because, like, this was sort of marketed at me but not marketed at me, but I really loved it. Um, I think I I got enough of the the jokes at the time that I like thought this was the smartest movie I had ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> but it was also full of like pop punk and stuff that was also like for me as a tween, what at the time was girl. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck yeah, this is made for me. And my friends and I would listen to the soundtrack over and over and over and over and over again. Um, so I think it was also kind of always in my consciousness. Um, and then as an adult, I was like, was that movie as good as I remember it was? Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. It's answer is always yes. been as good as I remembered it. But uh, you know who knows more about this? I do. Us? Do you? Well, I'm going to tell you. Why don't you tell me? Because <laughs> it be, it's your turn what to a, do the what a, what a weird... Do you know who is this? I don't know. Do you? Do the person sitting next to us? Do you, no. Why do we fight so much? Why do we fight so much? Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited to welcome on our guest, Mariah Thompson, who is a writer, improviser, and has spent the last decade working in uh, animation development at DreamWorks and Pixar. Um, we love her so much, and we think you will, too. Uh, hello, Mariah. Hello, Steph and Kaya. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Welcome. Okay. 
Okay, so we're just going to jump right in. Incredible. Um, the only thing you can do with Josie and the Pussycats. That's right. Uh, and for some context, the three of us watched this movie last night. Mm-hmm. So it is fresh in our brains. Fresh. Oh, it is right out of the farm. Oh. That's right. So yeah, absolutely. Fresh farm, farm to table, really. Farm, <laughs> farm to podcast. Farm to podcast. <laughs> uh, so let's pretend someone listening to this has never, ever mm-hmm. heard of Josie and the Pussycats somehow. Uh, how would you introduce it to them? How would you oh, put this incredible. on there? On yeah, there? this was a film produced by MGM and Universal, released in April of 2001, directed by uh, the team of Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont, who were a writer-director comedy team, very young at the time, I think in their 20s, uh, who had met at NYU. What, uh, was, what were they known for again? The, it was uh, Can't Hardly, I can't hardly Wait. wait. That's, <gasps> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think they worked... I think they worked on the very Brady sequel as oh. well, which was also one of those kind of culty sleeper hits. Right, yeah. right. But I think more successful when it came out than Josie and the Pussycats. That is a huge aspect of Josie and the Pussycats. So Josie and the Pussycats is an adaptation of a long-running property in comics and cartoons. Uh, Josie and the Pussycats was... In the comic was in the comic books of Archie, which were very successful starting in the nineteen I think nineteen fifties and really into the nineteen sixties. And then there was a two season syndicated cartoon, Josie and the Pussycats, um, that was very popular. The property got a little bit less po- uh, popular into kind of the nineties, early two thousands, but they resurrected it for this movie, Josie and the Pussycats, starring teen idols Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid, and Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson was earlier in her career, but we all know that she went on to become a major success. Yes. Also starring the villain duo of Alan Cumming and Parker Posey. Could it get more camp than that? This. Movie is stacked to the brim with incredible performers. And as you said, Kaya, it is also camp to the brim. Um, it is both a loving nod to the existing property of Josie and the Pussycats, this band from Riverdale, which is also where Archie is from. And it is this kind of like anti-consumerist fever dream that is both a take on the music industry and how it went from kind of the grunge of the 90s into pop era and boy band era and kind of what people thought was lost about the individualism of the 90s. And then it also is a musical that makes incredible pop and pop punk music and has an unbelievable soundtrack. Um, There's so many more things we're going to talk about, but for me, that is my kind of broad strokes. I could not have put that better. I could not have possibly put that better. (laughs) Uh, How did you get into it? Like, how did this become part of your... Yeah. What's your origin story? For me, it actually started with the Archie comics. It went all the way back. Really? Yeah. I was, as a little kid, um, my neighbor and I, she was a few years older than me, we had a secret club, as you do as kids. Our club was the Archie and Beatles Club, and we would hide in her attic and eat penny candy, read Archie comics, and listen to the Beatles. Um, um, before you continue with this, uh, has the NDA been lifted on this club? Or are you allowed to talk about it? <laughs> I mean, good luck finding our very secret clubhouse oh. in her attic that no one but us obviously knew about. Yeah, no, not the owners of the house. No, by any means. no, not all of our joint families and friends. Um, Do you have a code that you wrote things in? Oh my gosh. Only we had. Yes, that would have been, you should have been part of our club. I should have been. been. I think think we would have enjoyed (laughs) ourselves. Absolutely. Um, But I was a huge fan of the Archie comics and would collect them as a little kid. I think a lot of them are really outdated. Some stuff probably stands up. But they had these shorter inserts of Josie and the Pussycats inside of the larger comics and comic digests. And I was always a fan of Josie. 
Archie Comics is, you know, it's a little bit male-centric. You have Betty and Veronica, but you don't have sort of these female-driven storylines. And every time you jump into Josie and the Pussycats, you're like, wait, this is a world that I want to live in. This yeah. is so delightful. So by the time, and I wouldn't say that necessarily that was like cool factor for me. I wasn't bragging to people about Archie Comics, <laughs> but it was something that I loved. And so by the time, and I also loved movies. So by the time they were making a Josie and the Pussycats movie, I was like, oh, this is for me. You made this for me. Yeah. Um, I was also just at the right age. I was kind of, I was in that middle school preteen, you know, but also precocious and like oh, yeah. wanted things to be a little weird and satirical. Yeah. You think you're a little smarter than everybody around yeah. you? Yeah. 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 That phase. Yeah, sure. definitely. I think that's probably why we identify with each other. <laughs> um, but I went into them and I also love musicals. I just absolutely grew up loving musicals, loving a soundtrack that you can sing along to. So it's sort of, I think, I think we can call this one maybe a shared fandom yeah. and we can just kind of collectively love it. Yeah. Um, Did you both listen to like mostly soundtracks when you were young? Cause I feel like that was oh, a huge part of my youth was just like, I, my musical taste was musicals and soundtracks of movies. Yeah. Yeah. I discovered a lot of things from soundtracks and like there's still notable soundtracks. I remember like the Spider-Man soundtracks I have burned into my brain. Um, That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh, I it, you know, a movie came out and then you were like, what's the soundtrack? Yep. And that's, oh yeah. And that's the only reason I listened to Nickelback. Not because I, <laughs> <it. laughs> I liked it guys. <laughs> it's okay. It? Speak your no. truth. No, I love refuse. the things you love, Kaya. If oh. we've learned anything from Josie and the Pussycats, it's that it's okay to love what you love. Oh, look at this photograph. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, oh, and I mean, this could be a whole other episode, but the Shrek soundtrack. Oh, a perfect example. I incredible. An incredible soundtrack. Absolutely. Listen to that over and over and over again. With And we'll get into this. A little bit of Counting Crows overlap there. Mmm. Mm. Okay. Well, that was <laughs> wow. That was we went into his own there for a second. Ooh. Um, so, Josie and the Pussycats is notorious for the fact that it flopped hard mm -hmm. when it came out. Um, but since then, it's you know it's become a really big cult classic. Uh, what do you think changed since two thousand and one to now, other than? September. The 11th. passage of time. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, actually, yeah. No, I mean, we, we kind of say that as a side note, and I don't think we can go too far down that road. But that did change tastes a lot. You know, I do think that there was a real push into irony. There was a real push into kind of satirical work, self-referential work. I, yeah. I, I do think that that culturally there was a greater preparation probably for a lot of the um, things that that movie was employing. And uh, the biggest issue I think that the movie had was probably a marketing issue. Um, they were marketing it as kind of a bubblegum pop, like this is going to please the young teens movie. And I think teens, you know, some teens, obviously, us included, felt like it really spoke to us. But uh, a lot of people didn't. And a lot of reviewers didn't just didn't get it. Um, I think a lot of them didn't get it because they didn't know exactly what it was trying to do. And it, what they thought it was trying to do was just kind of spoon feed this fun, bright, spectacular time to people. And if that was what they were trying to do, they absolutely did not accomplish it. It yeah. was in that metric a yeah. failure. Um, but they were trying to do something much sneakier, much smarter, and much more mature. And I think a 
big thing that happened was an older audience found it over time. Yeah. And they kind of got beyond the marketing and to the content and just found that it spoke to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I think also with internet culture rising up, people in general start to get more and more niche in their interests, find community of other people that like it, and you get the opportunity to rewatch things in different contexts and also to look more into the making of. There's so much information now, so many interviews with the creators about what their choices were, why they made those choices, um, and what they were celebrating. And I think people really attached to that. Yeah. yeah. And this re- was, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it really was a time where sort of self-reflexive comedy started mm-hmm. to become a thing as the internet grew and people could, like, saying things like, uh, we're doing the thing we're making fun of right now in whatever way you do that was very much of that time. And I think this movie kind of walked so, like, Community mm-hmm. and Scott Pilgrim and stuff like that could run. Yeah, and it, this movie gets compared a lot to Spice World. Yeah which I think uh, was very similar in terms of its tone and content of just like, we're not taking ourselves too seriously. We're, we're in on the joke uh, in a way that I think audiences at the time, again, didn't really, weren't receptive to in the same way that you watch now and you're like, oh, well, those Spice Girls. But <laughs> I also think like, uh, you're right to compare the two because I think both of them sort of got dismissed. I think the Spice Girls movie is also a little smarter than it than it comes across um, or came across at the time because yeah, it really does know what it is. But I think there was also in the early 2000s this sort of like uh, uh, kickback on feminism and there was mm. this like, uh, dislike of the general girl power vibe like yeah. it got very mocked it got very like made fun of and the world got a lot more misogynist in the early 2000s yeah. so I feel like that also like layers onto this yeah and what's so fascinating is also I think that there was this way that the kind of girl power initiative got um, lumped into kind of like materialism and like yeah, girl yes. power consumerism yeah. and what's so there's so many different levels of inception about this movie and kind of the culture it represents but I think it's so funny when you think of it getting dismissed as part of a movement that it was also so actively critiquing yeah um, and I think there's also so much uh, solidarity that we've developed in um, in fandom and, and being part of a community that finds a gem. And I think a lot of the love of it comes from the fact that it did flop also. I mean, obviously, you know, it hit us in a certain way when we first saw it, but the fact that it failed and we were able to resuscitate this film over time, (laughs) just like, like our collective CPR gives us so much pride in that. And that makes us feel in community with each other. I mean, Really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And and like, this was something that I think last night, this was really sweet. We were watching the film and I started to have a thought and Steph stopped mid Kai and I were about to start chatting. (laughs) Kai said, stop. I mean, Steph said, stop, stop, stop. This is going to be an interesting conversation with the podcast. I wasn't sure if I was going to jump into it, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot since last night. And that is that this movie is so many layers of conversation about fandom itself. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of the place that it holds in culture. So like originally, you know, you had the Archie property, which had a huge fandom, but by the time this movie was made, that fandom had, you know, fizzled to a certain degree. Yeah, it wasn't cool. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't tell people if you still read Archie's. Like those were at most in someone's bathroom and you're like, an Archie comic, oh my God. But the studio, I guess, was like, okay, this property, there's still enough lifeblood in it that if we transform it into a film, then we can take advantage of the goodwill, we can use this IP and make money, and we can also make something that feels like it's ours. So then there was this first wave of kind of turning the fan, 
harnessing the fandom and enlivening it. Yeah. And then the movie itself is a meditation on fandom. The yep. whole thing is about what does it mean to be a fan? Is it something that's forced on you by pop culture, forced on you by corporations, or is it something that you come to organically? Um, and Kai, you made a comment about also this movie being about the ways that people take advantage of fandom, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and then the movie itself, which is a meditation on fandom, becomes a flop and then is rescued by a fandom. It's like inside, it's like a snake eating its tail, eating its tail, eating its tail. Um, but it's also at the final moments of the movie, a celebration of people finding what they like independently. Um, and then because just for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, the premise is one thing that I think we need to include is yeah. that the premise is that uh, the U.S. government is in cahoots with the mega records recording company to put subliminal messages underneath the music that they're releasing. Join the army. <laughs> exactly. To to convince all the listeners, primarily teens with disposable income, to buy products, to buy shoes, to to follow new trends, and to like certain music. So they don't even self-determine their own tastes when yeah. it comes to the music they're listening to. Which, for the record, this was like, for those of you who uh, don't get deep into 2000s pop culture for some wild <laughs> I reason. I don't get it, but um, sure. For those of you who haven't read Naomi Klein's No Logo, um, uh, <laughs> they, it, was, it was really a time like 90, the end of the 90s is when... Um, uh, consumerist culture really blossomed into the movies and product placement became a real thing. Like uh, Space Jam is one of the first movies that like really went all the way in on product placement. Yeah, because um, Wayne's World did it, but also in a in a mocking way, in the same yeah. way of just like, look at me eating these uh, Doritos or but, whatever it was. Yeah, it, that's that was kind of the start of it. It didn't always happen that way. Uh, and it, it was a real discussion that I remember was happening at the time of the idea of subliminal messaging and things they're putting in things. Like it, that was a real concern for people um i think right yeah no absolutely that was definitely it was like a quicksand it was just kind of like a yeah. collective fear that we had it's just it just seems so normal now because we all know that there's product placement and things mm -hmm. and it's almost just become it's in the water like we don't care um but at the time people were genuinely like concerned and paying attention to it yeah absolutely and so to have this movie that was released by a major studio trying to take advantage of an existing property, trying to get people to like it, the fact that it flopped and that the fandom had to come to it independently and organically and develop community around it is sort of the only way this movie could have gone in yeah. culture. Yeah. Like it just feels so perfect to me and it just feels like such rich, uh, a terrain for exploration in terms of how, how we relate to this. Yeah, kind of totally. It kind of fulfilled its own prophecy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this is just a thought I'm having. Of, um, it feels almost like based on where we're at now, I know we're having a big two thousands revival yes, in pop totally. culture right now. And it feels a bit like uh, Josie and the Pussycats walk so that Barbie could run. 100%. Oh yeah. No, Barbie wouldn't like that movie is absolutely of the same family. Yeah. And just like even, you know, content aside, the colors, the like, the look and feel of everything. The it fact was, that it's sort of marketed at like tween girls, but, but has this like greater message for people in in a larger, you know, demographic. Yeah. And and, you, oh, oh no, no, go ahead. I please. was just going to say, if Josie and the Pussycats came out now, it would be a success. Absolutely. But I don't think it mm -hmm. would perhaps impact people in the same way because everyone would be like, like they they would see this kind of content. They'd be like, oh yeah, it's just another one of those. Like we've seen them. Yeah, yeah. maybe. And what I was just going to say on top of that is that 
the directors of this these movies. I'm interesting that both. I mean, uh, you know, one of the directors is female identified. Josie Pussycats, Greta Gerwig, obviously, is female identified, and she co-wrote with a male uh, co-writer. But um, both of these movies present a really interesting challenge to their writer directors, which is to to nod to an existing property that has merchandise attached to it that has something quite literally to sell you. I mean, Mattel and Barbie to a much greater degree than Archie, even though that universe obviously continues to expand and continues to sell to people. But to try to toe this line of, of honoring a product, making a movie for major studios for that product, while also commenting on the institutional structures that that product operates within, Ooh. what a fine line to walk. And, yeah. and you know, I completely agree. I think every, like Greta Gerwig is empowered to do that in the way that she does, and she does it so skillfully, but she's empowered to do that because we've had these years of people getting yeah. used to this meta-commentary that things like Josie and the Pussycats provide. Yeah. It is sort of like gently gnawing the hand that feeds you, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can't go so far that yeah. you get fired. You still have to make this movie. You That's know? right. Yeah, it, it is the finest, like a razor thin edge that they have to walk. But both do it very successfully. And I think uh, if anyone has seen the Barbie movie, but not Josie and the Pussycats, get the two of oh. get the two your yeah. TV. Yeah, they're they're of the same ilk. I for think sure. you will definitely enjoy this movie. All right, I got to talk about the cast because this cast oh. is stacked, oh. wild. Uh, so Alan Cumming said. Uh, and I quote, it's some of the most shameless acting I've ever done. And that's saying something because I've done some shameless acting in my time. Love this quote so How much. do you think that shamelessness elevated the concept? Oh, I love that quote. I haven't heard that, but that's perfect. Shamelessness. Which is wild because he truly has had like his entire career is pretty shameless. Yeah, I, I found that quote yesterday and while we were watching it, like I found it before we watched the movie and I thought about it the entire movie and it was so hard not to say out loud because oh, yeah. when you're watching him, you're like, yeah, you know what? He's given it his all. You're going all the way, sir. Uh, so the question is, how has the shamelessness elevated it? Yeah. Which I completely agree that it has. I mean, that man... Classically trained, incredible, serious, dramatic actor Alan Cumming commits. He just commits the hell out of everything he does and he throws himself into it. And I think the only way for something this zany to work, for the comedy to land, is for everyone involved to be committed 110%. And he is also sort of one of the main villains of the film. A lot hinges around the believability that he would do some really heinous things. So for example, one of the other plot lines in the film that's running through this entire thing is that the record executives uh, on behalf of the government and tandem with the government are uh, controlling the bands that they're centering in order to filter their messages through them. And when the bands start to think independently, start to question, start to get a little out of hand, they just... Uh, assassinate them. Yep. Basically, they, yeah. which Straight is up kill them. like they the, in plane crashes and drug overdoses. They've created VH1s behind the music exclusively to make these big cover-ups uh, and like create these narratives around all of these stars crashing and burning on their own, so yeah. they don't have to take accountability. Yep. Um, and meanwhile, so his character, his last name is Frame. There's a lot of like naming conventions in this movie that are so on the nose, but I was thinking about that <laughs> watching last night and I was like, yeah, cause he's just constantly, I mean, there's probably a lot of ways you could interpret that name, but he's just like, 
he's he's framing everybody. He's like creating false narratives for everybody, yeah. you know. And y- you see him at first on an airplane with this boy band du jour, oh, which bless. we need to spend some time talking about. Oh, oh absolutely, please. <laughs> um, and you know they they're they're a bunch of adorable dum dums, but they do start to ask some questions. And so he pulls out his tiny little flip phone, says, you know, we've got to to uh, execute our plan. And um, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he always has these. Oh, Oh, it's like Operation calls. something. God damn it. Uh, put the Chevy to the levee. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, 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 yes. And then he and the pilot immediately parachute out of the plane and leave this boy band to just catapult to their deaths. Yeah. <laughs> and what what a terrifying prospect, right? Like, that's a horrifying thing to do to someone. It's so dark. It's that's how a, a movie for 13-year-old girls starts. Starts, mm. like, right off the bat, setting the tone. And they're like, this is the movie you're about to watch. These are the stakes, you yeah. know? Like, you're about, you know, the title characters are about to step into a business deal with this person with who, the devil with the literal devil yeah. and again talk about a fine line to walk you you need to you need to believe that in this universe that villain would do that mm-hmm. would have the backing to do that and the support and also you need to like them they need to be lovable and watchable and alan cumming is the perfect person to do that because he is shameless because he is so fully immersed in what he's doing because he is having so much fun fun and he is delightful to watch and he is the essence of camp and like somebody else who took that part seriously it would be really hard to watch I absolutely mean, yeah. like or who was held back somebody who wasn't shameless somebody who felt ashamed of the horrible things that they were doing we couldn't watch them in the same way and yeah. he hits the comedy nail so perfectly throughout this 100%. like he has this beautiful monologue when he's trying to get Josie to uh, to stay home and listen to a record and like the physicality <laughs> he exuberates in oh. that scene uh, it just, he hits the comedy note so well that it makes it, the rest of it watchable. Yeah. The, like one thing that reminded me of Scott Pilgrim while we were watching this is, is that like, this is the type of movie that has little sound effects when people like turn around too fast. <laughs> oh, you the know? necklace that Fiona yeah. 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 They use those sort of cartoon sound effects. And like that to me is like, he was acting to that style. Um, when like that wasn't a common type of acting. Now you see that because we've had this, like this movie and Scott Pilgrim and a bunch of other things established that style, that kind of live action cartoon. But he met that where it was at. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like he was really doing a live action cartoon. And beautifully said, because we also have to remember this property was a cartoon. This, this is coming from, animated roots and that kind of Im- there's a sense of movement in that there's a sense yeah. of tone that translates really beautifully in his performance but and- long before comic book movies were such a mainstream thing I just have to nod at this moment to uh, Alexandra Cabot uh, when they're on the plane and it's just like why are you here and she's like because well, I'm in the comics yeah, yeah. oh an yeah. amazing <laughs> line uh, played by Missy Pyle Missy Pyle oh, Missy incredible Pyle. comedian once again and please Let's talk about Parker Posey. We have to. Oh, we simply must. The the grand villain, the great orchestrator of this whole thing, uh, Fiona. Fiona. <laughs> um, Does she have a last name? I didn't I catch don't it. Think, I don't think she needs Fiona. one. She's yeah. like Madonna. Uh, yeah. I love Prince. Uh, <laughs> and this character, we find out, you know, she's the one working with the government to implant these messages. She's running the whole thing. And the I I don't even know where to start with her performance because she's note perfect in every scene. She yeah. hits this character so hard the like insecurity versus the like 
I'm in charge of everything. Uh, her physicality is epic. Like when they have this, they're like, let's go, um, you know, eat candy or whatever. And she stands in front of her own portrait and just like poses and is trying to look cool in front of all these other girls that, you know, she wants to be her friend. I just, I'm obsessed with her in this movie. Absolutely. Her, so her villain, her sort of arc is just that she is basically a young teen who is stunted emotionally at the point of rejection, who has feeling who is feeling desperately insecure and has focused her entire life on building up a persona of grace and class and success. Um, and she's still very close to the surface is just emotionally this insecure teenager. And because Parker Posey is stunning and, you know, has this dance background, she can move her body in this incredibly graceful, collected way. Does she? I did not she know that. absolutely does. Yeah. That makes so, that makes so much, much yeah. sense. Yeah. And so she has this incredible level of control where she can shift on a dime subtly between, again, a subtle shift between cartoony performances of this, like, incredibly smooth, collected villain. Almost Cruella-esque. Absolutely. Yes, good, good comparison. To then this just, like, desperately insecure, needy as hell. So needy. Child. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, also probably, like, in some ways, um, a villain trope in comedy that we've seen. We reference back to Barbie. I feel like, in some ways, Will Ferrell has a little bit of that quality, but because... Will Ferrell's whole career has yes. a little bit of that quality. <laughs> is, being, is being kind of the man-child. Yeah. Um, but there's something, I think, about this being a female-centric film and about about kind of the industry representing unattainable goals for young women. Yeah. Um, and, and this idea of that being embodied in the materialism and what's being sold to people. And, uh, and so she's reproducing the system that wounded her, right? Yeah. Because the way that she's trying to overcome it is to be the top of this really damaging pyramid. Yeah. Um, which again is like a really quite serious and beautiful theme that feels really true, but she plays it in this deliciously cartoonish way that makes it comedically palatable. If I may add a bit of a fun fact to this, apparently Parker Posey um, had recently bought a house when this happened, mm -hmm. uh, or an apartment, um, and she kept referring to this as the movie that was going to pay for her, her apartment. Oh no! She kind of thought she had sold out a little bit and wasn't sure what this movie was going to be because she was doing a kids movie. Yeah. Um, but of course she's Parker Posey, so she's still bringing her all to it. But apparently it was Alan Cumming that sort of drew her into the like, look how much fun Alan's having. So like, oh, I guess I can kind of let go on this, and you can really see it in the scenes that they do together yeah. that they are just having the best time and I kind of love knowing that of just the like wasn't entirely sure but like eventually came to the premise and just delivered such a good such a good performance oh such a dynamic duo and they had worked together before and yeah. they obviously knew each other but like they play off each other so well so well and obviously I mean this uh, podcast is gonna be full of spoilers but huge spoiler alert it ends with the two of them realizing that they actually knew each other in high school and have both been on the same trajectory of transforming themselves for outward acceptance to the point that they no longer recognize each other. And when they start peeling back the layers and, re and get to the point of being the vulnerable teens they used to be, they come together in this like beautiful and weird, deeply weird uh, kind of romantic kinship that it's just like the perfect culmination of their like 
they're they're tete a tete the entire time. Like yeah. we want that resolution for the two of them yeah. because they have such strong chemistry. Yeah. Oh, so good. Uh, we, I don't think we need to spend too much time on the main cast, but I specifically want to nod to Tara Reid in this because I feel like she's an actress that we've all seen do a lot of terrible movies mm, and yeah. perform terribly. Uh, uh, for those of you, again, uh, who's not super into 2000s pop culture, Tara Reid was like uh, sort of proto-Paris Hilton kind of like, or was that kind of the same time? Same, I think it's the same, same time. I think she was in that 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 group of uh, young Hollywood yeah. that really got uh, maligned as like dummies. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. she would have been referred to as a true ditz at the yeah. time. Uh, but I feel like that helped her in this role, but also like she plays so open and full of heart in a yeah. way that I don't think I've seen her in any other movie because she typically plays like she's in Sharknado. Like that's the type of stuff she's doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think she does such a beautiful job of playing Melody in this movie. And I just want to want to put that out there because Tara Reid, you were great. Yeah, justice for Tara Reid. And one thing that I actually often say is that it takes a smart actor to play a dumb blonde. 100%. Yeah. It is not yeah. an easy thing to do. Um, and it requires a lot of self-awareness and a lot of nuance. And I think Steph, you hit the nail right on the head with the sincerity in her performance, because, uh, this character of Melody is incredibly open-hearted and actually deeply perceptive and empathetic. Like in terms of some of the basics of life, she is such a committed optimist that she sort of blocks out some of the reality. Like the worst insult that she was given is that puppies turn into dogs who grow old and die. And that devastates this oh, character. Yeah, like she cannot handle this truth. Like that is far too much reality. <laughs> but she also just has like a spidey sense for how people are feeling and thinking and doing. Um, and uh, playing that balance between just being like oblivious in all the spaces she's in because she's so tunnel vision on the most positive aspects of reality. And then also having this intelligence like... Um, and there's also some really great physical comedy. Like there's a moment when uh, the three the three members of the band who are all living together have a have a shock moment, and they all back up and sit down. And both Josie and Valerie sit into chairs, and Melody just falls onto the ground. <laughs> Full cartoon. <laughs> Full cartoon. You know, and then just pops back up again. It's like oh, like completely surprised that there was nothing behind her. And that kind of performance, like. You, you have to deeply understand the comedy of it. You have to understand why that lands in order to do it, and you have to have a base intelligence. So justice for Tara Reid and the for Tara that she has. I feel I like also, so many women were maligned in the early 2000s and, and put into this category. I mean, we've seen some, like, justice for Britney Spears mm-hmm. and all that come up, and let's add Tara Reid to that yeah. list. Justice for Tara Reid. Falls into that, like, misogyny of that era yeah. of, like, if you're pretty and you're a girl, you have to be an idiot. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's those two things were just just sort of went hand in hand. Yeah. If you're smart, you're ugly. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's totally the climate we grew up in. <laughs> yeah. uh, we love it. Oh, God. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think she she plays that so wonderfully. And also the other two are great, too. Like, I mean, I, I really, really like Rosario Dawson in this. Mm-hmm. Like, similar to everybody else, she's playing this straight. Yeah. You know, she's she's really committing to her character and what feels real about her character. Yeah. Absolutely. And that apparently that role was 
quite competitive to cast. Um, there were some really big names that were also up for the role of Valerie, um, including uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, Aaliyah, Beyonce. Beyonce. Oh my God. Like these incredible performers. Um, and and then there was just something really special that Rosario Dawson brought to the role. Um, yeah. And obviously she lands just right. And also that uh, the role of Valerie has a lot of historical importance. And this might need a fact check, but my understanding, I believe, is that Valerie on the cartoons in the 60s was, I believe, the first black character in Saturday morning cartoons. Which is amazing. Huge. Inc- incredible. Yeah. Historic. And also she was unbelievably capable. She was always the one in the cartoon that was getting them out of trouble, that was like just prepared to do so many things. And when you first meet Valerie in her kind of tableau, you're cutting to all these different like incredible community service things that she's doing. And then she's also this amazing, you know, uh, I guess she's playing the bass, right? Yes. Yeah, this bassist. And like um, she, she's just like a very kind of accomplished and kind and thoughtful human being. Um, and Rosario Dawson has both like the power of this character and kind of the thoughtfulness in her performance, I yeah. think. And there's this very quiet sort of like very, very quiet subplot of her being sort of maligned as one of the band members that like keeps getting forgotten about, yeah. which I think is really poignant as the only person of color really in the mm-hmm. movie that she keeps like she's done so much work to get them there. And then she immediately gets shunted off to the side. And it's like, ooh, this like this hits. Yeah. yeah. This is this is uh, this is an interesting thing to add to this. And I, they don't vocalize it because that's. Mm-hmm. Not where movies were at at the time, but it, it's there for sure. Yeah, and I do think that if this movie were made today, or I would love to see this movie adapted into a stage musical, for example. Oh, hell yeah. I think, and it's it's ready for that. It already has the songs. Yeah. It's yeah. right there. Yeah, and I hope we got to talk about that too. Oh, we will. Um, but uh, that character, I think, is really ripe for an expansion and just like really diving into what the experience of being a woman of color in music and professional music in that era would have been like. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about this music. We're right here. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It slaps, right? Ooh. It slaps. It's incredible. Um, this uh, music was uh I mean, you have a, a weird connection to this music in a weird offshoot way. Sort of. I dated someone who was related to uh, one of the people in Fountains of Wayne. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, there were a couple people who worked on this soundtrack, including um, the lead singer of Count- Counting Crows, um, yeah. wrote, uh, I believe it was Spin Around. Yep. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Fountains of Wayne lead singer also well, wrote a bunch of these. Who also wrote the song That Thing You Do from That Thing You Do. Yep. Uh, this guy loves a, a parody musical. Yeah, and uh, writes really good songs for them. It was produced by Babyface, who was uh, an incredibly epic producer in the 90s, uh, probably continues to be so to this day. Like this soundtrack, uh, the songs were written to be a female Blink-182. Basically. Is how they desi- decided to do it. And Blink-182, if you were not aware, in the early 2000s, was everywhere and everything. And so to have a female version of that, the the, the scoring of it, oh, I, I'm going to toss this over to Mariah because I have to stop talking about this. I'm so excited <laughs> about this soundtrack. Yeah, no, I completely agree. The soundtrack is incredible. And uh, it was a it was a fairly large team that worked on it because there's a lot of people with a lot of hands in the pie. And also Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont, who were the writer directors, they didn't really have a background in music, but they were really one of the things that sold them on making this movie. They were originally a little bit hesitant to resurrect this property. But when they realized they could make a musical, that was one of the main things that sold them oh, on it. Oh, cool. They were particularly excited for it to be a musical. And one thing that we were commenting on, why? 
watching the movie again last night was that if you listen to the soundtrack, it is hit after hit after hit after oh, hit of original, completely original music that is both satirical commentary on the music of the time and also so singable and danceable and strong. Tight instrumentals, like really well really, played. Really, really tight. Um, and uh, that is used it is employed in the movie in a really cool way because there are obviously performances, but then it also operates as score. So it's kind of a musical with music in the background and the foreground. And sometimes it'll just be scoring a scene. And then suddenly they will start singing to the song that's in the background. It kind of flutters in and out of the scene in this really interesting way. But uh, there were a lot of people working on it and offering different skill sets. You obviously have some music that is just for the band, for Josie and the Pussycats, which is this kind of pop punk. And then they're also doing this parody of boy bands of the time. And Babyface, the producer, I think had worked with a number of mm. these boy bands. Really? Yeah. And That's so fun. Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont wrote some completely inane lyrics. Um, I feel like we should pull some of them up, but like the du jour, uh, so this band du jour is, is exemplifying the boy bands of the day. And they wrote the stupidest possible lyrics they could for them yeah, in their intro song. they wrote them in a car, In the car. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's two songs. There's Backdoor Lover, which is... Coming from behinds with the lights down low. Which is a ridiculous, ridiculously inappropriate song, which is... Um, I'm not sure how much of this I can say in the podcast, but essentially all a euphemism for anal intercourse. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, you got it. Yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. Um, and uh, they get away with it. And then they wrote a song that's the du jour kind of main theme song talking about themselves that they wrote entirely in the car. Um, and it, it, the stupidest lyrics. Do you have them, uh, I have Backdoor Lover up right okay. now. Uh, this kind of love is wrong, but you know it feels so right. Running my hands across your cheeks, they're oh so smooth and white. So leave the light on, baby, and unlock your back door. I'll be coming through that way tonight to love you for sure. Perfect. Poetry. Oh, L. And then, and then the uh, du jour around the world is like, nobody rocks the mic like du jour. Du jour. Ride, Ride on, on your, your motorbike, motorbike with, with du jour. jour. Ride on your motorbike what? with du jour. Meaningless. Meaningless. But like very intentionally meaningless. So meaningless. But then they handed it over to Babyface and they said, can you turn this nonsense into a boy band hit? And did like pause this podcast right now and go listen to this song be, and then come back. Yeah. The instrumentation, the samples, like it feels like a Backstreet Boys song. Yeah. It feels like an NSYNC song. It is so fun and danceable. And th I think this is the balance that the soundtrack strikes of being like, we're here to have silly fun. And also we want this music to be good. And we are challenging yeah. our team to make this as good as possible. Yeah, it's one of those things that like I recently watched Girls Five Ever, which is kind of in the same tradition of this, and yeah. I feel like it didn't do that quite to the same extent. In that no. the, the like, I, I see what they were trying to do, but the girl band sound didn't sound like girl bands. Yeah, it sounded I, like it was pretending to be a girl band. Well, if not that only makes that, sense. It the the thing that I found about um, Girls Five. Which, which is very funny and like a mile a minute in terms of jokes because it's obviously like it's. Um, Tina Fey. But and Josie and the Pussycats, uh, I feel like, did its research and came from a love and deep knowledge of it, where I feel like Girls 5 Eva kind of knew that there were girl bands, but didn't spend the time to get to know, like, what the notes to hit, they what weren't, the jokes to yeah, poke at. Absolutely. Like, it, it didn't come from a realm of 
uh, deep understanding of the content. It just was like, girl bands were pretty funny, huh? Let's make fun of them. They had a dumb one. Whereas this felt very real. And of course, these are two very different times that these were made in. Like when Josie and the Pussycats was made, this was still music on the radio. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also, while we're talking about this, want to make a nod to the central vocalist in all the songs for Josie and the Pussycats, Kay Hanley, who was the lead singer of Letters to Cleo. Yep. So Kay Hanley was brought in. There was another singer who had recorded all of the songs. Rachel Lee Cook knew she was coming in, not really a singer. Um, and she said to them, like, are you sure you want to hire me? And they're like, yes, you're, you're the right character for this role. You're so charming. You're so watchable. If you can hold, like, if you can kind of carry a tune, that'll be enough. She comes into the studio and sings. And they were like, well, you know what? Actually, you're, you're great. We'll have you on backing vocals. But we do want this to be at a level of performance that it's believable that once people move away from the subliminal messaging, they choose you as their band, that, like, you are good enough to sway people. So they recorded it with another singer and they had the whole, most of the album cut and then listened to it and it didn't quite match. The singer's voice didn't quite match Rachel Lee Cook's. It didn't feel like that was the music coming out of her mouth. So unfortunately that unknown singer was let go and they brought in Kay Hanley and uh, Kay has this ability, I mean, already in her voice, but then also this ability to kind of streamline her tone so that it really does sound like Rachel Lee Cook. It's very convincing. I forget frequently. Absolutely. And she's an incredible singer and performer, but what they also did, and this is why I connected to the fact that I now have a scratchy throat, is they sang her to the edge of her voice. She would get to the end. She would be singing so hard. And, and like, I mean, they say kind of, you know, to the point of her throat's bleeding and it's so scratchy. And they would say one more take. And that was usually the take that they took because they wanted it to have, even though it's, it's pop punk, they wanted it to have this raw quality where you could believe that this band had been, you know, scream singing in their garage in Riverdale for years, just because of the music, because they're so passionate about the music that they're making. And they're, you know, when we first meet Josie and the Pussycats, they're playing in a bowling alley and they walk away with $5 collectively because they have to pay for their own shoes to sing in this bowling alley. (laughs) Like, ridiculous. And so they have to be in it for the music and you have to hear that in what's made. It can't be like somebody else's parody. It has to be, again, you know, talk about Alan Cummings' performance being shameless and all in and committed. The music also had to be that way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're wrapping up this section, but what is the nerdiest thing that you've done in relation to this fandom? Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> I, uh, I'm i sure there are far nerdier things to do, but there is merch. Um, there, is, uh, there is a subliminal message at the end of this movie, Dozing Pussycats is the best movie ever joined the army, um, because, <laughs> because in this other level of inception, within the film itself, the the kind of supervillains and the government by the end say, you know what, we've realized that actually subliminal messages in pop music are less effective than putting them straight into movies. And so we're now just shifting all of our energy to movies. And then the movie itself flashes a subliminal message, which is just ridiculous. And you can go online and buy hats and shirts and other things with this ridiculous, incredibly niche reference to this one deeply <laughs> incepted joke in Josie and the Pussycats. I proudly wear that hat. I wish I had it with me today. Oh. Um, but I also bought it for friends. Uh, It's so good. Every time I meet someone who likes Josie and the Pussycats, I quietly mutter, Josie and the Pussycats is the best movie ever. Join the Army. Join the Army. Army. (laughs) It's so, so funny. I think we need to get ourselves. I think maybe we need to. uh, Some of this merch. 
We're about to jump into hot takes, but before we do, this episode is brought to you by tpublic.com, where you're going to find your next favorite tea. They have unique and nerdy designs that are available on t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, mugs, stickers, phone cases, notebooks, pillows, whatever you want. Basically, you can find a design uh, that you love and get it on almost anything. The other thing that is so amazing about TeePublic is you can customize everything about it. So if you like a design, you can customize the size, the color, the fabric. You can make it exactly the t-shirt you want it to be. And on top of that, um, all of the designs are made by indie artists. So you are not only getting a really cool t-shirt, but you're also supporting an artist who's getting a fair commission for their work. Um, when you buy a t-shirt from TeePublic, you are supporting them and you're also also supporting this podcast. Ooh, Ooh we love it. So go find yourself a Josie and the Pussycats tee. They uh, for sure have them. They there. for sure have them. Uh, Kai is presently wearing one of our tea public shirts, which is a, a classic vintage looking Alex Trebek with his beautiful mustache. I wore it to Fan Expo and I got so no less than 10 different compliments. So many compliments. Yeah, people loved it. So you head over to tpublic.thefandomshow.com to check out our merch and our favorite designs from Tea Public. Once more, that's tpublic.thefandomshow.com. And thank you so much to Tea Public for your support. We couldn't do this without you. And now, the hottest of hot takes. So, and looking for hot takes, it's a very interesting thing that I found, which is not a lot of people have a lot of bad things to say about this unless you Anymore. go into the past. Yeah. But if you go in the past, there's a lot of bad things that people had to say about it. But I'm going to start here with this is from Roger Ebert from his. Uh, half a star review of Josie half and the Pussycat. Oh, Rod. E Mr. Rude. Ebert. It's truly rude. Uh, so I'm just going to start with this. Uh, Parker Posey has one of those supporting roles from hell where she has to make her entrance as a cliche and then never even gets to play with the conventions of her role. She's Cummings' boss, one of the masterminds of the nefarious Saboral marketing scheme, and since she is, in fact, a funny and talented actress with wicked timing, her failure to make anything of this role is proof that there's nothing for her to work with. How does that make you feel? Oh, the look Mariah on her face right now is injured. <laughs> it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's I, There's really nothing else to say except you missed the point, darling. Yeah, like I don't know how he watched this movie and was like, she's doing garbage. I just, I don't know if there was a literacy for this type of film at the time. Yeah. People didn't know how to talk about it. They didn't know what to look for. And, you know, there were obviously people who loved it at the time, but people just didn't understand it. And when you don't understand something, it scares you and seems like he was a little scared. <laughs> he was a little scared. It yeah. rocked him a little bit. Um, this one actually, I think, uh, is very uh, personally relevant as well. Uh, this one is the discussion on weight and the women being around 115 to 118 pounds scarred me. So there's a scene uh, with Fiona and Josie where Fiona's asking Josie what her weight is. Uh, and Josie says, oh, it's 118. And then Fiona's like, ha, I'm 115. I beat you. Uh, and it's that is a very common thing from the 2000s. Oh, my God. Yeah. The idea that like mm -hmm. 115 is huge to them. They're like, oh, I'm working so hard. What is your thought and feeling about the like uh, addressing of women's bodies in this movie and that approach? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the way the women look and are packaged as a through line, they are taken to Hollywood and immediately get a makeover, which is another trope, you know. It's, before they record anything. Before they record any yeah. music. Their image is an enormous part of who they are. And a lot of Fiona's baggage about being accepted and her trauma from high school that she's holding onto as a full-grown adult is about looking a certain way and presenting a certain way. And, you know, I think that this kind of holds two truths in 
And one is that uh, there are ways that this movie um, represents aspects of the society that it's critiquing uh, and and can kind of like be critiqued. Like we, we're not going to say that this is completely absent of issue. Totally. And also the movie isn't holding up that behavior, that kind of self-criticism as a positive thing. Um, I don't know that I would deal with this in the same way now, but one of the kind of resolutions of uh, the conflict with Fiona is there's a physical fight near the end where they shove a Twinkie into her mouth. Um, And she also has a moment where like when they're sitting around, she takes a single chip and puts it onto her plate and then is about to eat it and looks around and is like, oh, I'm a pig, you know? Yeah. And and there are much more thoughtful and sensitive ways to deal with the damaging narratives yeah. around uh, like body dysmorphia and uh, the pressures to be thin and just to kind of think of your body as an object to be consumed by other people as opposed to something that kind of empowers you to move through the world. And so this both is trying, I think, to, to kind of lightly laugh at and be comedic about those pressures, but also like could probably do it in a more nuanced way now. Yeah. One thing that I noticed is at the beginning of the film, they're talking about how they're all splitting a single pack of ramen noodles because they're really poor. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I I thought that kind of resonated in an interesting way when they were talking about their weight is that like these three are literally malnourished. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's the conversation that's being had here is that like malnourishment was kind of being held up as a good thing Mm -hmm. um, at the time. And it was like, again, very, very, very subtle. Um, it's only there if you're looking for it. But yeah, it, it, it's interesting because they're clearly trying to make fun of it. Um, but I can also see how when you're a kid, uh, you don't see that element of it in the same way. Well, and it reminds me of that moment in the Barbie movie where they're like this this monologue that uh, Margot Robbie is, Robbie is delivering uh, is like, this will not land as well if it's being given by Margot, Margot Robbie, Robbie because she's too yeah. beautiful yes. and pretty. And I feel like that kind of hits the same note here with it's like, yeah, I understand that this is the message that you're trying to portray, but you're also portraying it through Chinese, like nearing on skeletal women yeah. trying to be mm-hmm. like, ah, this is a joke. Being thin is, you know, a trap. Oh. And it's like, yeah, but also, yeah, but also you are tiny. They were so tiny that like Rosario Dawson has Looks a quote huge. where she's like, I felt enormous next mm. to these two tiny, tiny women. Like I was a giant next to them. And it was like, that's wild to think of Rosario Dawson, a very normal sized human. Mm-hmm. Not like, even, she's quite thin yeah, in this movie. Yeah. She's yeah. also thin, but I think that again, this movie is trying to poke fun at a thing that it also just inherently is by virtue of. Hollywood at that time. Mm -hmm. On that subject, um, a hot take that I read a lot was the idea that the product placement in this movie was doing what uh, what it was kind of railing against. The idea that if you watch this movie, there's product placement in, and this is not an exaggeration, I believe almost every shot. Yes. Um, And a lot of people at the time had the hot take that it's doing exactly the thing it's making fun of. Yeah, and these products are the most mainstream products of the day. Target yeah. is everywhere. everywhere. Revlon is everywhere. Yep. You know, these these are not hard to recognize niche products. This is not your yep. Casper mattress. This is the biggest corporation. Coke, McDonald's. And apparently, if this is not a lie... Uh, the creators have said that they didn't actually get paid for any of that. None of that it, is yeah. correct. It was entirely an artistic choice, which is wild, but it does help to know that. Yes, um, it and does. Because it is also like, I should have looked up her name, but I want to nod to the production designer. The production design of this film is incredible. Every single time um, the 
they shift into a new place. The world is fully immersive. It is a nod to the early 2000s. And the product placement is comedically utilized. It's absurd. Like, Tara Reid at one point is taking a shower. They each have their own rooms designed in different ways. Tara Reid is in the McDonald's room, and she is taking a shower in a shower covered with McDonald's logos, washing herself with a loofah that is shaped like a container of fries. It's absurd. It is so on the nose and so, let's use this word again, shameless. Yeah, totally. Especially knowing that they didn't get any... Um, payback from this like can only be a comedic choice it's yep. so 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 overboard that it, it can't just be like I didn't leave this movie wanting to go buy Target I mean I don't know maybe some people did uh, I can't imagine well apparently but. the way they got uh, with a lot of the companies they thought so little of this movie that they were like sure whatever use our products in your thing that uh, like it doesn't affect us at all whereas some companies apparently they originally wanted to do uh like a dance sequence of like everybody in, you know, khakis, uh, like everybody a like a gap one. Mm. And gap was like, no, yeah. you cannot use this. They saw what was happening. For yeah. Sure. Whereas all the other ones were like, yeah, nobody's going to give a shit about this movie. Sure. Make a McDonald's shower. We don't care. Yeah. And I think this all ties back into the way that this movie could only be the movie it is. If it had flopped, if people had disregarded it, if they hadn't wanted to be involved, because there's another reality where it's, you know, such a success that all these products are like, we want to ride that train. We want to be part of it. We want to cross promote. We want, you know, and like happy meals that are all little Josie figures. And then it actually like, becomes the thing it's making fun yeah, of. Absolutely. The same way, like the hunger games now is like, I saw subway promoting the Hunger Games, and I'm like, we're the capital. We are the capital. <laughs> this, is, this is the opposite of the point of this book. Not that I'm the most massive Hunger Games fan, but it just seems antithetical. Uh, I also just want to nod out the the production designer is Jasna Stefanovich, who also did uh, The Cube, The Virgin Suicides, American Pie 2, A Mighty Wind. Right. Mighty Wind. Mighty oh, Wind. that's fun. Yeah. yeah Can't that's, Hardly Wait also. This is Spinal right, Tap. Right. Oh, shit. That's a career to track because her, I mean, those are all wildly different movies yep. with like pretty interesting design elements. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about the difference between Spinal Tap and The Virgin Suicides. Like those, those have to be fully immersed into a genre, totally. into a totally different world. Um, and... Uh, there's kind of a presence and a subtlety to it. So like this movie, you could just watch. I mean, the sound is obviously extremely important to it, but you could watch it with the sound off and just drown yourself in the visuals. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks good for being on a really low budget. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, This one is, I will forever and always hope that Val eventually figured out she had a crush on Josie and got herself a hot girlfriend. Who wrote that one? Was it, it was Kaya. <laughs> That's Kaya's hot take. I just agree. So Friend much. of the podcast, Kaya Green. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, this, does this movie seem queer coded? Hmm. Great question. I, I could see it in there. I don't know that I would say it's the first thing that I take it away isn't. from I it. I watched it again last night and I was like, eh, it's not. But I also, think I just wanted it. <laughs> Val gets a level of upset at Josie and like has created this narrative that Josie is against her uh, in such a way that I'm like, I see some seeds of jealousy in there, but not necessarily just like success jealousy. Of I, just like, I think this is just me carrying over my wounds from Bring It On in which Missy from that movie <laughs> is 100% gay. Um, and they can't say it. They can't say it because that's not the movie that they're making. But mm-hmm. like that's it's so, so coded. So I think I looked for that in a lot of different movies. I'm denying my own hot take. <laughs> I mean, I I love that idea. And I mean, I, I'm sure there is fan fiction if we look for it. No oh, question. Yeah. And like, I'm sure it is so readable and delicious. And I am all here for it and do not think that it needs to be denied in that universe I think 
a romance between them could totally exist or at least like a one-way unrequited love. Um, but yeah, I don't know that I would hold yeah. this up in the canon of queer-coded no. cinema in the same way. And as also it's just good. Uh, it's it's a good friendship. I think it's, it's nice fun. to have uh, good female friendships. Uh, all right. This one is from friend of the podcast, Candace Meeks, who says, Val and Archie is the best ship and they should have had him in the movie. They could never, ca- and also they could never cast an Alan M for a Josie TV show or Riverdale because Gabriel Mann, who played him in the movie, is the only true Alan M. Oh, Candace, great take. I mean, there's so much in there. I agree. Alan M, there could be no better Alan M. He's perfect. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I, I will say also, like, Alan M, uh, there's a sweetness and kind of a himboism to him that also feels like we're kind of having a summer of right now with Ken and Knuff and some other films that I could name. He is a Ken. We love a himbo. We love a himbo. Yeah, totally. And it's kind of a a, a soft trope that goes with, you know, a female empowerment film that's kind of like girl power centered where you're most interested in the lives and careers and friendships of these women. And then it's fun to maybe have a romance on the side, but also if it wasn't there, it would still be a complete film. Um, But that's a hard role to fill to be comedic and sweet and lovable. And you're happy he's there, but also we don't really need him. Um, I mean, maybe come at me, Alan M fans. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> that would really be a sub fandom of a sub fandom. Yeah, the hardcore totally. Alan M fan. Um, but man, this Val and Archie stuff. I feel like I need to go back in the records and check this out. Thank you for for surfacing that, Candace, because uh, I got to go back to the Archies and Beatles Club and and get myself refamiliarized with that. Sounds I, like a lot of fun. I think they approach it on Riverdale, oh, uh, which is okay. it's a whole other. Yeah, that's a different episode. Oh. Oh, man, I feel like we're going to bring Candace on for that one. 100%. That is, Riverdale is Candace, what are you doing later? Uh, <laughs> um, um, okay, so uh, we're, we're coming up to the end of this, but I do want to say one thing that I think we're all going to potentially agree with. Josie deserves be, to be in the misunderstood satire pantheon with perennial bro faves, RoboCop, and Starship Troopers. Snaps. Just snaps. 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 That's, that's, snaps. What else can you say? All right, Mariah, before we wrap this up, what is your hottest Josie and the Pussycat take? My hottest take, I have so many, but I think mine would be that uh, the second season of the cartoon, um, if no one has watched it, is Josie and the Pussycats in space. <laughs> and the film, as originally pitched by Denver Kaplan and Harry Elfont, was also going to be in space. The network didn't quite eat it up, so they pivoted to this <laughs> other idea, which they also felt strongly about and obviously was the movie that we all needed. Yeah. But... I would not mind seeing a sequel with, uh, or seeing, I would love to see the version that was pitched that didn't make it. And then I think also maybe we all just need to collectively Kickstarter that movie and just get it made. Yeah, let's pull Veronica Mars. Let's make it happen. Come on, get them in space, please. And also like the parody that we could do now with our relationship to space (gasps) and our relationship to, you know, like all of these mega corporations and what they're doing in space and near earth satellites. I mean, it feels like actually now is Josie's in space time. Oh my God, I'm transported. Oh <laughs> That's my such God. a good idea. Yeah. That's such a good idea. Who has their number? How, how do we do this? <laughs> Let's get this made. All right. At the end of every episode, we like to share our micro fandoms of the week, which we're going to do in just one moment. But before we do, we want to let you know some other ways uh, getting in touch with us. Uh, so you can find us on social media at Fandom Show Pod or on our website at thefandomshow.com. And also, please, please, please tell your friends about us uh, if you're enjoying the podcast. And if you can, and this one is huge, please get on your podcast provider of choice, ideally Apple Podcasts, and do a little rate review 
and subscribe. Uh, that helps us so much. And even a one sentence review or a one word review, you can put in send the pussycats to space. Yeah, or du jour means seatbelts. Du jour means seatbelts. Uh, it really helps us move up in the charts and it helps us find, uh, helps more people find the podcast. So please get on any of those providers, rate. Rate us, let people know how you're feeling. We also have merch. Uh, if you want to wear our faces on your shirt, uh, you can head over to thefandomshow.tpublic.com slash and snag our faces on your favorite things. You can put them on mugs. You can uh, put them on phone cases. You can put them on, as I said before, shirts, um, any, anywhere you like and help us get the word out. Um, you can also find us on the From Superheroes Discord where you can meet other fans, hit us up. You can suggest hot takes. You can suggest subjects. It's super cool. Bunch of like-minded, awesome people. And our theme song is by... By Yusu Kim and our logo is by John Blair. And now our micro fandoms for the week, starting with you, Mariah. What what are your uh, what are your fandoms for this week? What are you loving? Um, there's a lot of good content out right now, and I want to shout out to the movie Bottoms. Um, I saw it on one of the opening days in Canada, and there were shockingly few people in the theater, which I really hope is not representative because this movie needs to be seen. This is a ridiculous uh, lesbian fight club teen comedy um, by uh, writer-director Emma Seligman, co um, uh, Iowa Debery, and uh, co-writer and star Rachel Snott, and they are also a trio from NYU Tisch, which is where, you know, our creators cool. of Josie Pussycats are from, and uh, there's an incredible himbo in that movie, and there's a lot of, like, very fun girl power, but it takes a lot of the energy that we love in a Josie and the Pussycats, and it's very 2023. I highly recommend this film. It is a riotous good time. It is wild. That's amazing. Kaya, what have you been fanning out about? Um, I just, uh, I'm really late to this particular party, but I just uh, finally got around to reading The Brief one, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow um, by Janot Diaz. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that right, and I am wrong, and I am very sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's such a wonderful book. I remember like 10 years ago seeing people reading this on the subway everywhere, and I finally picked it up. Um, but it's such a cool like meditation on myth and culture and like comparing sort of uh, this beautiful like background um uh, to lord of the rings this family background that has a curse on it to like these fantasy things through this character who's a huge nerd um oh man it, i can't describe very well how good this book is but i very very much recommend reading it it took me on a wonderful wonderful ride Steph, what are you what are you fanning out about? Uh, red, white, and royal blue. Uh, and we are going to be doing an episode on this uh, in the upcoming uh, months with uh, I have Bylies Cat uh, Angus, oh, a star. Um, but I read this book while we were at a cottage, and it was just it was such a delicious read. It was so like I read it quite quickly. I was immersed in it. It was exactly what I thought it would be, but also in the best possible way. It's just like a frothy romance about um, the Prince of England, the the spare Prince of England and the first son of the United States in a sort of parallel universe to ours. And it's delicious. We watched the movie last night as well. And oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's a real milkshake of a book. Yeah. And uh, also one of the performers in it who plays Prince Henry was also in Bottoms, we found out. It's so all connected. I cannot Ooh. wait uh, to watch that movie. But also, if you haven't watched it on uh, Amazon or haven't read the book, do it. it. Give yourself a treat. It's a nice fun Give time. yourself a little yum, yum, Sunday yum, yum, yum. of a book in a movie. That's right. Um, thank you so much, Mariah, uh, for being here and talking about your fandom. Where can people find you? Is there anything you want to plug? 
Um, I mean, I guess I would like to plug myself. Um, I, I uh, just as an entity and as a writer, I am uh, transitioning and I would like to be writing for TV. And there's obviously a strike going on right now. And I'm very much in support of that strike. Hell yeah. But um, if anybody is looking for an eager writer to join their staff writing team, or even potentially to bring them coffee for a little while. Once the strike is over, I would love to join you to do that. And I would love to send you my funny little pilot scripts. Incredible. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with Mariah for that purpose, you can reach out to us on our social medias. We can find ways of making it happen. Oh, yeah. We have magic. Yes, we do. We know a person who knows a person. We're the people. <laughs> We're the people. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Until next time, love the things you love and tell everyone about them. Bye. Bye. The Fandom Show is produced by Andrew Ivamy as part of the From Superheroes Network. For more great podcasts like this, as well as webcomics, articles, and so much more, visit FromSuperheroes.com.